Love Talk Radio. This is All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009, featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just... I love that. Call our guest line at any time during the live show at area code 646-727-3235 and let's talk about wine. Again, the phone number to call is 646-727-3235. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Good crowd. Good crowd. Uh, that's that tape starting uh, to drag a little bit or something. Getting a little weird on the music there. So you notice that? Yeah. Mm, really? It, it, yeah. It's like. Yeah. I'll I, just, I think it's on a track. Let me see if I can change the a track and. Maybe maybe get a cassette player for it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <That'll be better. laughs> that's how current we are. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's how today. Yeah. Well, because when we started, it was reel to reel, and then we got rid of the reel to reel and upgraded to an eight track, and yeah. I think we stayed with the eight track for the past nine years. So yeah, really um, too long. Yeah. Well, we put all of our money into the jet, to the all about one jet. So you know, yeah, the jet. we can't afford any anything other than the eight track. <laughs> I'm thinking about getting getting advertisements. Oh, all of you listeners out there, if you object to listening to a few advertisements during the the uh, broadcast or the tape broadcast, it won't be live, but it'll be taped. If you object to it a lot, let me know. And I won't do it, but if I don't hear from you, and this might generate some people contact me, but if you if you don't mind, I've been thinking about, you know, getting a hold of them and seeing about the advertisements and seeing what it consists of and how it works and all that stuff. And, yeah, you know, I, we'll find out. So, but if you object, yep. if you seriously object, email me and let me know or, you know, contact me on Facebook or whatever. Um, we were talking about Disney before the program. I had a niece that went and visited Disney for the last two weeks. She stopped by and visited me on Saturday while me and wife. And her and her husband and her uh what, five year old five year old son. And they uh spent oh, two weeks over at Disney. And she said that one day it was so crowded that she couldn't stand it anymore. And so that they went to another park. Uh they had a you know hopper type thing. And Mike and I were talking about how crowded it is. And he, he mentioned that he's walked from the front gate all the way through to out to the back when it was crowded. And it took him like three days to do it. I mean, it's just. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have to plan ahead if you want to do that. Uh, 
But when it was yeah. that crowded, you know, what you were saying, you know, walking sideways through there and stuff oh, yeah. like that. Yeah, you have, just, to, you have to walk sideways and push people, and, you know, it's it's a... <laughs> oh, <laughs> man, and knock little babies over and stuff like that. Uh, well, you know, you got priorities. Uh, yes, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I just, <laughs> I can't imagine, though. How would that yeah. be enjoyable? This is the thing that I have a hard time with. How would that be enjoyable? Well, I suppose if you well, planned, you know, for a year, next mm-hmm. Christmas, want to go to Disney World. And if you plan yeah. this for a year, and the kids are excited, and you're excited, and you've got reservation at the hotel, and you've got your tickets, then... Yeah. You can't you can't change it. You, you go and, uh, and put up with it, and hopefully you know what you're, what you're getting into. Um, and some of them don't, I mean, some of them plan four years uh, plus to, to go. I mean, they save up. Really? And, you know, that's that's the once-in-a-lifetime, you know, they can go, and they'll, they'll deal with it. So uh, yeah. Yeah, I talked to a few people like that, so I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it can get expensive. I mean, you know, no question about it. If you family afford to Disney, and, you know, it just, it's just, you know, spend a week yeah. there, and it's, it's it can get expensive. But you know, we were just you know, the number of people at like Disney World is just mind-boggling. Staggering. Mind yeah. It is staggering. So, yeah. we share some of our before-air topics with you. <laughs> Apparently, opening packages or something, or opening presents. What was the occasion? <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a, a packager of uh, kitty treats. We have cats, and it was open, and it should have been closed. And so I I closed it to get it out of the way here. Um, got some information for you now. This is you know nothing, just stuff as always. Uh, interesting stuff. I hope I. Uh, we were talking also before the air about fires, the wildfires out west. A lot of them, a lot of wildfires out west right now. Uh, uh, back to the wxshift.com site that I quoted you last week. Uh, back to that, they're saying that there are 53 large fires currently burning. I don't know what their cutoff definition of large are, but they're saying 53 large fires. Uh, in the United States right now, and all of them are west. I don't see anything in the east uh, anywhere. They're all west of, uh, well, actually west of the Mississippi. Uh, there's a couple in Texas, but then all of them are west of Texas. Uh, Colorado and New Mexico, there's one burning in Arizona right now, which we didn't have last week. Uh, Utah and, uh, let's see, um, Yes, Wyoming, there's none either. I thought there was uh, none in Wyoming, but Idaho, Western Oregon, California, Nevada. Nevada's got quite a few uh, northern edge. But uh, I got email addresses from the people I talked to last week, and I shot them off an email. Any fires hitting vineyards? And the response was, from all of them, no. As far as they know, everything is safe. So as of now, we have no vineyards that are threatened by the fires, but it's burning up wheat fields and houses and all sorts of stuff. It's a nasty thing, the wildfire. And it's dry 
and because it's so dry and the storms are coming through and the lightning, they're expecting to have more problems. Serious stuff, these fires. It happens year after year, and it seems to be getting worse. But uh, uh, nothing on the vineyards. And that's, you know, since this is all about wine, that's the reason I can pursue that. So, And if there is, uh, if I hear about anything, I will let you know, as always. A couple of announcements here on coming up. Let's see. It's not there. It's not there. It's here. Oh, I'm just, just one announcement. There's none others. Whispering Oaks has uh, their standard weekend stuff going on, their steak night, Friday and Saturday, uh, Friday, Saturday and Sunday nights. Reservations required, twenty-seven fifty a person. Uh, again, 16-ounce porterhouse or ribeye or wild caught Alaskan salmon and all the goodies that go with it. Three five two seven four eight zero four four nine or www.winesofflorida.com slash steak night. Make your reservation. It's got entertainment, all sorts of stuff. Fun winery anyway. So if you can't make it to the meal, go out and check out the winery anyway because it is really a, a fun place. So, uh, and Keith uh, Joshua Winery is also having a thing coming up in August, so August 25th, so save a date on that. But uh, we'll tell you more details next week. I'm, I'm not going to go over that week after week. Listen to last week's, we're going to a lot, or next week I'll talk about it again. Yeah, Keith Joshua. Um, a little bit of trivia. I keep reading these little trivia things with you. i got a whole stack of stuff here. And... Uh, so let me read you a little bit more trivia thing here for you. Water, water everywhere. In an environmentally sensitive world, the need for water conservation is increasingly important, which might make you wonder just how much water do vineyards guzzle anyway. The answer is a very tiny amount. Vines, as any farmer can tell you, don't like wet feet. The roots need to be pretty dry. That is why, from Portugal to Greece, vineyards, as well as olive trees, which don't like much water either, were traditionally planted in the driest, least fertile lands ringing the Mediterranean. Today, in fact, countless vineyards all over the world are dry farmed, meaning they get no water at all, except for whatever Mother Nature decides to shower them with. As for vineyards that are irrigated, even most of those get minuscule amounts of water. Today, in fact, vintners can use sophisticated modern technology, including computerized sensors in the soil and miniature weather stations in the vineyard, to measure humidity, fog, wind, and solar radiation. They can even track the exact amount of moisture the roots have access to and how much water the vine is losing to evaporation at any given time. In many cases, vines are given mere drops of water and then only when it's so hot or dry that the vine is on the verge of going into heat shock. So, not a lot of water on vineyards. There is a method that some use and this is one of the reasons why they put them on the edge of stuff like that. But there's a method where you actually do starve your grapevines of water, especially around right after the horizon when 
they start changing colors. Uh, the grapevine or the grapes start changing color. You starve your grapes vines with water, and the grapevine is fooled into thinking that they are going to die. And no water puts them under stress, and they're going to die. So because they think they're going to die, they save their babies, which is the grapes, and they feed the water to the grapes to get them, well, healthy and strong and be able to reproduce. And so they're getting the water, they're being plucked up, they're being Instead of putting water into the leaves or vines or anything else, they feed it into the grapes. And then after a couple of weeks of this, you start watering them a little bit, do drip irrigation or whatever if there's no rain. And it's, the grapevine says, ah, I'm not going to die anyway. So it's too late, though, because they've already given all this energy into the grapes. So that's uh, just a method that's used often. Um, so it's uh, it's just uh, a method that you something that's uh, used in warning. But overall, there's not a whole lot of uh, water goes into the vineyards. Uh, drip irrigation is used quite often, and it's little small drip heads that can put anywhere from you know a half a gallon an hour to up to two gallons an hour, depending on the size of the drip head. So it's just different ways to do it. Uh, let's see. I wonder if you get this. Is this the one? No, this is not the one. It's the one before this I want to go to. Uh, 20. This is, oh, Los Angeles. Yeah, this is, I want to tell you about this. History of Los Angeles Vineyards. This caught my eye. I, I didn't know about this, and I thought I would share some of this with you because this was quite interesting. This article is the gnarled history of Los Angeles Vineyards, and this is uh, from uh, Atlas Obscuria, A T L A S O B S C. U-R-A, atlasobscuria.com, www. Um, no, I don't want to subscribe to it. But it's interesting article. Los Angeles City, the archives of Los Angeles and the wine industry there is quite fascinating. Uh, there are a lot of vineyards that were planted around Los Angeles back when Los Angeles was first found. Napa Valley was not known at the time in the in the uh, 18, 18 and around then. Uh, the, some of the oldest homes uh, that were first built, considering the whole, oldest home in the city was built in 1818. And when it was planted, or when it was built, they planted vineyards around it. And there has been vineyards in the area ever since. Napa, Sonoma, all these areas, uh, Temecula outside there, none of these were ever considered. They were just areas, uh, and it wasn't something that they even considered vineyards. So through the out the 19th century, many grapevines were grew in 
the uh, Los Angeles area, uh, actually areas that are now city, Hollywood Hills, stuff like this. There's a lot of grapevines all around there. And so Los Angeles was the area in California that was the winemaking center. In fact, by uh, 1850, the Los Angeles area boasted over 100 vineyards. And the city's first ever seal, uh, drawn up several years after the 1850, dubbed it the City of Wines. And it uh, was quite an area for vineyards. Early maps, if you look at some very early maps of Los Angeles, you'll see how the city is set up next to the water, and then just east of the city is a lot of farmland and a lot of vineyards. It was a uh, uh, very, very popular area for that. A lot of the grapevines came up with, uh, well, the, the city's history is wine started when it was colonized by the Spanish, and the Spaniards enjoyed drinking wine, and the Franciscan monks enjoyed it in ceremonies and stuff. And one of the missionaries that was sent there, Father Junipero Serra, had grape cuttings sent up from Mexico in 1778 so he could make sacramental wines. And the wines, or the vines thrived at Mission San Gabriel, which is pretty close to the present-day Los Angeles. And because of that, it started to explode as a wine-growing region. Los Angeles continued to grow wine, our grapes and make wines. In fact, they had a wine street in Los Angeles. Uh, it was renamed to uh, Olivera Street a uh, number of years after, but it was, it was actually known as Wine Street. Uh, in the 1850s, California was still iso uh, so isolated that residents were begging the government to build highways and roads. It was, you know, they weren't being affected by uh, California. It was sort of forgotten. But 1848, gold rush hit, and it flooded California. And that's what started it all. Um, it's uh, coupled with tax breaks from the California legislature uh, and the fact that... Uh, uh, informed farmers that uh, the government informed farmers that they can rake in $200 per acre if they planted grapes, which $200 per acre at that time was phenomenal in the you know, mid-1800s. The number of grapevines in the state swelled from just over 300, uh, 324,000 in 1855 to over 4 million three years later. Now, these are grapevines, not acres. Uh, to over 4 million grapevines just three years later. Uh, they covered areas uh, in Pasco, uh, in Pasco, in Los Angeles County from Malibu to past Pasadena, to the areas that we know as Malibu and Pasadena today, uh, just all over the place. By the uh, 1870s, the urbanization started 
and it started to change the landscape. And 1875, the railroads hit Los Angeles, and that started to explode the residents. Uh, from uh, 1870, the population was 5,728. Can you imagine Los Angeles with 5,728 people? 20 years later, it had jumped over 50,000 residents. And it was, you know, investors and all sorts of stuff. Uh, around that time, the Floxra knocked out a bunch of vineyards in Europe and a lot of capital from England around the world came to Southern California to try to take advantage of that. But Northern California was developing at the same time. So that was starting the death blow to Los Angeles area. They actually started vineyards and was making wines locally in Northern California. But that's when Anaheim disease hit, which was later dubbed Pierce disease. It started to cause Los Angeles grapes to wither and then the roots to die altogether. This was back in 1883. Anaheim disease, with this destructive and rapid rust of the vineyard, signaled the end of Southern California's dominance in the wine industry. And by 1890, Northern California surpassed its southern neighbors in production and the uh, and making wine. The former wine areas in Southern California started to plant other crops. Oranges basically more so than anything else. Then uh, as the urbanization grew, it pretty much was the end of all the vineyards around Southern California with Napa, Sonoma, and those areas north becoming more and more known at the turn of the 20th, or, you know, 20th century, 1900s. The uh, seal of Los Angeles, though, Corporation of the City of Los Angeles, uh, from, uh, made it 1854, and it was used until 1905, in the center, it was a grape cluster, grapes and some leaves. That they used that because it was so so important in uh, the industry around there. The uh, little little effort in Los Angeles, though, on the areas to actually uh, cash in, I guess the word on uh, the grape culture there. The uh, local Native Americans were enslaved to use in the vineyards. That might be part of the reason. When the Spanish started to baptize people and all that, that changed it. Uh, missions disbanded after Mexican independence, and as California became a state, it was even more of a uh, change to the missionaries and all. And... The uh, cycle lasted until 1862 when uh, it changed the legislature changed the fact that you could not have the indentured servants, slaves from anywhere, working in vineyards and stuff like that. You had to pay them and all. So it stopped 
that which again was an even greater death blow to the vineyards of California or to Los Angeles and Southern California. And so uh, that just the, the great history of Los Angeles vineyards uh, was something I never realized, and that's it's funny. I never, I probably because it is not publicized. You would think that it would be much more publicized or something, especially how much wine and grapes and everything are so popular now. You would think that they would publicize the fact that vineyards in the Los Angeles area was really the economy for the area for many years before Napa became Napa. So, so there you go. I just, uh, again, thought that was a very interesting bit of information there in Los Angeles wine industry. A few things other than that that I want to pass on to you that I found recently that I saw. Uh, some new wines out here. This is Charles Smith Wines, which is a brand of Constellation Brands, one of many, many of Constellation Brands, released a new wine called Band of Roses Rosé. The rosé is made from 100% Pinot Gris from Washington State. It is a blend of pure flavors delivered through a silky palate with notes of lilac, guava, tangerine, passion fruit, and cut hay. It adds. <laughs> cut hay. And it says flavors. It doesn't say aromas. It says flavors of cut hay. That's an interesting terminology. Bands of Roses Rosé features a 12.5% alcohol by volume content and is available for suggested retail price of $12.99. You know, it would almost be worth spending the $13 to get that just to see if you can detect the cut hay in on the palate. Uh, this is Constellation Brands out of Victor, New York. Uh, Internet Charles smithwines.com and it is distributed nationally cut hey I find it interesting here's another one this is uh, 2016 Canaris Chardonnay Provence uh, Provenance Vineyard out of Rutherford California internet Provenance that's P-R-O-V-E-N-A-N-C, ProvenanceVineyards.com. This distribution is also national. Uh, Provenance Vineyards debuted an all-new wine, a 2016 Canaris Chardonnay. Canaris Chardonnay mainly is sourced from uh, San Giacomo and Winery Lake Vineyards, the company says. The varietal features fruit that is fermented in small oak barrels to add flavors, uh, layers of flavors, and then is aged for 12 months in French oak barrels. The 2016 vintage wine offers scents of lemon, honeysuckle, and jasmine, along with flavors of white peach and green pear. Not just peach and pear, but white peach and green pear. Consumers can purchase the 2016 Canary Chardonnay, which features a 14.5% alcohol by volume content for a suggested retail price of $35. And it is a 750 millimeter. 
couple more here, new products. 2014 Cabernet Sauvignon, San Augustin Vineyards out of Warner Springs, California. Internet, San Augustin, and that's S-A-N-A-G-U-S-T-I-N, San Augustin Vineyards.com. Distribution in select markets. So um, it might not be in your area. San Augustin Vineyards released a new edition of its wine collection, a 2014 Cabernet Sauvignon. The red wine is a deep color with good tannin structure and a subtle astringency, the company says. The company uses grapes from its vineyard in San Diego County to give it a unique character dance. At 13.5% alcohol by volume, the Cabernet Sauvignon is available in 750 bottles for a suggested retail price of $22.99. Huh. Be a warmer climate down there. Quite a bit of warmer climate that you're getting. And that's from Vino Blanco from Finn Valley Vineyards in Finnville, Michigan. It's internet, finnvalley.com, and distribution again in select markets. Vino Verde. Finn Valley Vineyards added its first iteration of canned wines to its lineup. Yes, can, can. Vino Blanco. Inspired by Vino Verde, Vino Blanco is a result of the owner's love of the history and intrigue of Portuguese wine culture, the company says. It is a dry white wine that boosts a crisp and refreshing taste, it adds. Vino Blanco is available in 375 milliliter cans, 375 mil, at select retailers in Michigan and Illinois. It is available in four packs for a suggested retail price of $14.99, or you can purchase individual cans for $3.99. So I guess Finn Valley is out of Michigan? Maybe, I don't know. Yes, Finn Valley, Michigan. That It is. It is out of Michigan. So Finn Valley Vineyards in a can. Something I noticed here, nothing to do with wine, but something I think it might be interesting. Pass on. We talk about cannabis, marijuana quite often. This little thing here is just a, a quote from a Brian Sedano, who's managing partner of Beverage Marketing Corporation. And he states, the normalization of cannabis use for adults across America continues with no end in sight. As a result, increasingly savvy com- Consumers are seeking reliable and consistent cannabis products to meet those needs. Although data is mixed at this point, it is believed that cannabis will generally have a greater impact, a greater negative impact on beer rather than on wine and spirits. Hmm. That's an interesting observation by Brian here, but... uh, he thinks it's going to affect beer more than wine or spirits. I don't know. Uh, I think it's going to be a matter of discretionary income anyway. So, yeah, we'll see. Union Wine Company. Union Wine Company is the one that's come out with the Underwood wine. You've seen it, I'm sure, if you've looked at cans anywhere, if you've been anywhere that sells it. Um, they are... Really getting into the canned wine. As the saying goes, the numbers don't lie. 
when a canned wine brand grows more than 50% in a year, it's clear that something is working. So whether it's the wine steroid packaging price point or a combination of things, Union Wine Company is listening to consumers' demand and responding in return. Uh, their sales have increased 52% in the past year in the canned wine category. Uh, it goes into a lot more detail on this article. I'm not going to go through the whole thing with it. It's just the point being that it's selling. Canned wine is selling. Uh, Oregon, out of Oregon, Oregon Terror Union Wine Company farms 53 acres, 11 of which in the Sahelum Mountain American Viticultural Area, AVA, nine in the McMinnville AVA, 18 in the Ribbon Ridge AVA, and 15 in the Eola Amity Hills AVA. The wines are distributed in 49 states and the District of Columbia, as well as 12 countries internationally. Union's three wine series, the Underwood, which is Can King's Ridge, and Alchemist all capture the spirit of Oregon a way you can put on your table every day, says uh, CEO. So, uh, it's uh, canned wines. They're obviously there. They're obviously working. They're obviously exploding. And Union Wine Company is proving that with their constant uh, increase in their canned wines that they're putting out. I don't know. I'm trying to think how many canned wines. I've had a couple of canned wines, but not enough to really make me think, oh, wow, these are great. These are wonderful. I need to get more. And just something unique and convenient, if anything. So, state of the industry in wines in 2018. The uh, premium statement growth. Uh, drove the growth in wines this past year. It's up 2.5%. And the numbers suggest that retailers are supporting premiumization by increasing distribution of premium wines. It really is uh, limiting the popular or value wines in the segment because more retailers are carrying the premium plus products as the demand from the consumers grow. So the industry states that the consumers are demanding more premium wines. In his June 2017 report titled Wine in America, the Chicago-based Euromonitor International highlights uh, demographic trends are among the factors contributing to the growing premium wine market. While millennials, to a lesser degree, Generation X are proving to be quite enthusiastic consumers of wine, and they're purchasing a higher-end wine, more expensive wine. They are finding uh, they are looking for the uh, demand for a high quality, and because of that, it is bringing in higher price and more of the premium wines. The uh, in practice is resulting in a willingness to buy premium wines and alternative pack types such as the Tetra Pack, bag in a box offerings, and those type of packaging. 
of premium products as well as the growth of American whiskey and bourbon markets have also benefited the U.S. spirits market. So the top table wines. I went through this in the past. I mean, go through the current list. Barefoot, as we all know, dominates the market. Uh, <laughs> Barefoot dollar sales in the past year. Uh, six. Let's see. This is, yeah, this is six hundred sixty-five million three hundred eleven thousand five hundred twenty-nine dollars. The next closest one, number two, is Sutter Home at three hundred seventy-nine million eight hundred nineteen thousand six hundred forty-one. Almost double barefoot is over. Well, not quite almost double, but barefoot is you know three hundred thousand, almost three hundred thousand more in sell, or three hundred million more in sales in the second place. Walking away with the market, although barefoot has dropped in sales by 0.7 percent since last year, but they do have 6.4 percent of the market sale. That's substantial, if you really think about it, 6.4% of the market sale. Sutter Home, number two, 3.6% of the market sale. Woodbridge by Robert Mondavi, $349 million plus. They are up 3% from last year, 3.4% of the market sale. Franzia Box is next, $337 plus, almost $338 million. 3.3% of the market. Yellowtail comes in at 269.5 million, 2.6% of the market. Black box, 221,124,000. They have jumped up 22.6% over a year. They are 2.1% of the market share. So they're climbing, climbing. Kendall Jackson, we have to know that, 194 million, 194.5 million, uh, 1.9%. Apothic, 193.2 million, almost 193.3. They are 1.9% of the market. Menage Troy, 182.5 million in sales, 1.8% of the market. And rounding it up, Chateau St. Michel. At one hundred and seventy-six million seven hundred fifty-six thousand, and one point seven percent of the market. So it is uh, barefoot. Actually, all the names that we always know. These are the names that you see in the store. These are the names which shame on you. You shouldn't be automatically walk in and buy. Spread out. Get something else. Don't be stuck with the same ones all the time. There are lots of good wines out there. There are lots of good ones you can look at and buy. So don't always buy the same ones. Don't always buy those top ten. I saw this. I thought was rather interesting. Handmaid's Tale wines. I I don't know if you're fans of Handmaid's Tale. I... I haven't seen any episodes, but we do have Amazon Prime, and so many people have said, you need to watch it, you need to watch it, so we're probably going to do a binge on it one day. But as of now, I have not seen it. It's supposed to be phenomenal, so that's why we're going to watch it. But 
This is out of the paper uh, you know, five days ago, I think, local paper. It says, follow this one under, why did anyone ever think this was a good idea? To quote Slate, I don't know what, I guess, I think. Quote, Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale is destined to go down as one of the most depressing shows of all time for its dystopian vision of women reduced to breeding chattel under a bureaucratic regime. Yes, but also its almost impressively offensive merchandising schemes. End quote. On Tuesday, you can briefly buy wines inspired by three of the show's female characters. The horrifyingly tone-deaf description for a $20 bottle of off-red, let's see, of off-red pays the Pinot Noir. It states, quote, completely stripped of her rights and freedom, off-red must rely on the one weapon she has left to stay in control, her feminine wiles. This French Pinot Noir is similarly seductive. It's dark berry fruit and casts its aromatics so beguiling it seems almost forbidden to taste. End quote. Unsurprisingly, Lot 18 and MGM decided to cancel the wines within hours of their going on sale. <laughs> so, so you can't get them. <laughs> so if you're a fan of... Uh, Handmaid's Tale, they're not going to have wines on the market. Handmaid's Tale's wines because the description obviously is somewhat offensive and <laughs> stupid. Uh, so, so there you go. Let me read you a little bit more trivia here. Uh, I suppose that was trivia since they were going to pull it off the market. Um, above all other Chardonnays in the world, white burgundies are renowned for their refinement and complexity. And above all other white burgundies, those of uh, uh, Lonely Montrachet are considered to be the most ravishing and concentrated. The tiny village, just 1,260 acres, sits between two great white wine villages, uh, Chachonnet Montrachet to the south and Marceau to the north. Originally, a Gallo-Roman village known as um, Polinicus. Poligny Montrachet got its current name in the late 19th century. The village's preeminence as one of the most extraordinary places on earth for Chardonnay is, however, recent. Before World War II, the village was also planted with wheat, blackcurrant, and mulberries. And records show that early vine plantings here were not even Chardonnay, but Gamay, the red wine that today makes Beaujolais wines. So there you go. But, you know, if you have not enjoyed a French Chardonnay, by all means, uh, pick up some. You can tell the difference in the style of French Chardonnays that you can from domestic or American. Oh, let's see. What do we want to do on this? Let's talk about something. What was it? I'm going to find this here. Uh, do, 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 do. Not that. Uh, does TCA develop after bottling? 
question is, and since it loads here, we will talk about it for a second. Can TCA develop after bowling, and how does this how does it affect it? Okay. Mark McEwen asked, I recently opened a Red Bordeaux Second Growth 2002 and immediately picked up the aromas associated with cork, uh, with corked wines. I substantially posted the cork back to the Chateau for analysis and they confirmed that the cork was tainted with TCA. However, I was surprised by their comment that cork wines may arise due to bad storing conditions or temperature fluctuations. Is it possible for TCA to develop after delivery? I thought that if TCA were to infect the cork, then it w this would have occurred at some point up until the bottling process and not after. Jeff Tyler replies, gosh, what an enormous subject area. I could write pages. Firstly, TCA is just one of many anisoles all smell musty, are very similar, and naturally occurring and found in many materials in addition to cork. Much of the damp, musty smell in old cellars or warehouses is down to, down to these anisols, which incidentally are also found in food products. Anisols are volatile and can cross-contaminate other products externally. For example, the cardboard and wood of a clean, tank-free case in an old cellar may become impregnated with anisols, or therefore may be some of on the label or glass. But I have no, never known it to enter the wine from the outside. This answers the question as best I can. But given the case or the ease of cross-contamination, Handling the bottle box setter, testing a cork is fraught with challenges and reinterpretations. So he's saying probably not, but yeah, maybe so. So I think the bottom line here is he really didn't answer our question fully. He just sort of said that it can, but who knows? Well, let me get rid of that. Um, winemakers are aging their bottles of wine under the sea. We know that. We talked about that in the past. That's It's a good place to do it. They're finding wines under the sea that have been very, very well aged because of the consistent temperatures and the way it goes. New Jersey wines. We, we need to revisit New Jersey in, in the future. We will in the future, but New Jersey wines. Uh, some serious contenders. There are it's winemaker and owner of uh, Almathea Cellars in Echo said that New Jersey wines are doing a great job now and becoming noted worldwide. Uh, winemaking is good for New Jersey and other lessons uh, that people have learned. Twelve fun things about New Jersey uh, wines uh, just different things on this it says that uh, blend of Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot and Cabernet Franc recently received some impressive uh, accolades and a score of 97 and received a platinum medal at the Beverage Tasting Institute uh, show 
Out of 8,400 wines the Institute reviewed over the past three years, 97 is the highest score that has been awarded, and only nine wines have earned it. The other 97-point wines have came from Australia, Italy, and Napa Valley. This one, Cab Sauvignon, Merlot, and Cab Franc, came from New Jersey. So, you know, like, wow. That makes the Outer Coast uh, quite serious. Uh, 2995 or 2995, it's a serious bargain compared to $80 Cabernet wines or even $46 Australian wines with the same score. Uh, it was a uh, instrumental in getting New Jersey annual wine competition switched from being judged in state to being judged by BTI. So uh, this is uh, quite a, a coup for, for New Jersey wines. He sent several of his wines, uh, Caracciola sent several of his wines to the BTI and he earned gold medals uh, given to wines, scored 90 for six of them. Those six were made, all uh, were made with red wine grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. But, they says, New Jersey is not just about traditional grapes. They have wines made from all sorts of hybrids, Vignole and Chambourson as well as fruit wines, cranberries, and blueberries that sell very well and the state is very proud of. He uh, said that uh, have an in-the-house pool of expertise for the types of wines that you're doing. They keep an open mind when they're tasting and traveling. There is a place for sweet fruit wines as well as serious dry wines. Each wine is relative to what the winemaker is trying to accomplish and they're not being held to the standards of Bordeaux wines. Uh, New Jersey wines are judged as New Jersey wines. They aren't judged against what a wine from France, Italy, or Napa would taste like, but they're judged on their own merit. And let's see, with these scores, it just goes on and tells a little bit about competition, which is, you know, uh, with these scores indicate that New Jersey wine industry has reached a tipping point. We won't know until mid-August when the scores are made public. After the tasting, Europe, Europa won that kept evolving and getting better and better. Uh, and in my glass over time, I spoke with its winemaker as well as tasting many other excellent New Jersey wines over the past year. And he says he's very optimistic about New Jersey wines being noted more. So, New Jersey wines. Uh, we've talked about New Jersey wines before, and uh, we've been talked to a couple of people in New Jersey, and it seems like they have something going for them up there. And I'm impressed. Okay, let's do this and talk about... This is this one. Yes, this is the one. Um, okay. No, this isn't the one. It's non-alcoholic wine water tastes just like the real deal. I saw that article on Reddit, and I'm going, ah, okay. Well, you know, not really. Uh, nine wine restaurants worth the hype. New York City, Los Angeles. That's about it. If you know, you, you 
you travel only to New York City and Los Angeles, you're going to find those. The latest issue of Wine Spectator magazine has listed their restaurant list for the country. And it's, it's very good. If you don't see that issue, if you don't get that issue, and you do any type of traveling, or if you want to check and see if there's anything around your area that offers decent wine list and decent food, check it out. The Wine Spectator magazine every year has come out with this for a number of years. I, I don't know how many for sure, but for many years they've come out with this list. And they list how many, you know, they give them stars, uh, five, four, three, two. And Burn Steakhouse in Tampa is always right on it. There's one. They've got one one of the largest wine cellars in the country. And they're always listed right there at the top. Great food, a little expensive. But they have a good list. The Wine Spectator magazine has a great list of the wine restaurants, uh, the restaurants that sell wines and stuff. And it tells you average cost you're going to spend and how many bottles they have and different things like that for just about every state. And in fact, I, I tend to think every state is listed. I don't have the magazine in front of me. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but, but it's uh, a very comprehensive list. And it's worth, if you have not been to some of the restaurants on there, it's worth going to those like Burns Steakhouse in Tampa is uh, good food. It's absolutely excellent food. It is rather expensive overall. Uh, great wine list, one that you I've never seen anything bigger. But you can go on the wine cellar tour, and they take you downstairs and show you all the wines and all the ones down there and all that. And that's just a fraction, though. This is the thing. They have... Uh, a, great big building that is air conditioned and it's got wine stored in it which is even larger than the cellar you see but a lot of the different restaurants around the country will take you and show you the different wines and all so it's it's a fun thing fun thing to do okay let's see uh i think but I think I might have to close it tonight because there's just a lot of garbage on here that I don't want to talk about and bore you with it. So instead of boring you with it, I'll say I'm done tonight. Wow, okay. Um, 7.54. That's six minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, have you have you ever? Uh, I know you're talking about the the Burn Steakhouse. Have have you? I mean, eaten there or anything? Um, yeah, I have once. It, once I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's great food. Uh, absolutely great mm-hmm. food. And you know the wine list. They give you the wine list, and you sit there, and they come over and say, "Are you ready?" No. And you look and look and look. Are you ready? No. And you look and look and look. And I, <laughs> you, know, you can spend. You can so that's why it's so hard to get in there because probably people spend yeah. so much time at the wine list, you know. But uh, right. yeah, I, I had an opportunity to eat there once, and uh, it's way down in Tampa. It's, it's a, a good, a good like hour from here. 
Hyde Park, I I'm think. Sorry. Um, it's, it's in Hyde Park, I think. I think, somewhere around there. Yeah, right next to Hyde Park. And, uh, yeah, right off Howard. And uh, it's, uh, in fact, I, I, you know, I can't even picture what the outside looks like. I can remember the inside. But they have uh, uh, great food. I, you know, we had some fantastic food. I'd love to be able to go there and try different foods and stuff. But the, the wine list yeah. was phenomenal. And we, we had wine with a meal and uh, went with another couple. And uh, my wife and I went with another couple. And we had wine with the meal. And then uh, afterwards, we took the tour of the cellar. And mm-hmm. then they had the dessert room that you go to. Yep. And we went to the dessert room and we had uh, wine with dessert. And I, I can't remember what, and cheesecake or something for dessert. Whatever, I don't know. Um, but, you know, all the fancy desserts and everything you want. And then you can get the, your dessert wines with them and all that. So we had a very, 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 very nice evening. It was it was really fantastic. Had a good time and uh, just really enjoyed uh, the whole thing there. Um, yeah. But again, you know, it's it's not something that you go well. You know, uh, that's people are coming in from out of town. Let's go down to Burns. It's you know, nothing right. like that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> not cheap. It's not it's cheap. Now, have you been there? Uh, I have. I've uh, when I was driving uh, charters, I I deliver people there. And uh, uh, one of their one of their wait staff would come out and ask if we wanted the uh, their hamburger, and their hamburger normally retails for like sixteen dollars, but we we got a <laughs> discount because we brought a group over, and uh, oh my god, it was delicious. I mean, it's it's all it's amazing just to think of a burger, but it's like I, I don't know what they do. It's it's I I remember them saying that the wait staff um, had to they weren't considered. Uh, I don't know, full-time or employees or something until they've gone through this whole, like a year long process or something training and and learning every aspect of, of the restaurant, what they offer and and the ins and outs and everything. It's just, it's just intense. And then after that, then they can start, uh, I can't remember how, God, it was how how many years ago, (laughs) but uh, you know, the outside you think is like, Oh, it's just a building. It's not, it's not not impressive at all. No, not at all. And then, and yeah. you go in there, and, and you know it's it's mm, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And then they said that the, the speaking of wine, they said one of the bottles they had was like thirty five thousand, I think, for the bottle. Yeah. But that yeah. was that was like their that was like their you know main. I'm sure it was heavily guarded, and you couldn't just go up and and you know, hey, I'd like to do a wine tasting, uh, and then yeah. have that one. <laughs> Give me that and that and that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but they got not another cheap, big but, warehouse too. Not just that one there. You know, they don't have yeah. just in the basement there, but they got another big, big warehouse full of wines and stuff. Um, yeah, right, they're right up there. They're, I think they're in the top ten or top twenty mm-hmm. in the country for the most wines. I think you know, but wow. um, they uh, yeah, it, it 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 really is a quite impressive place. It's. Um, mm-hmm. Great food and it just and it's American cuisine. It's not uh, it's not Italian or, or French or anything, American cuisine, but it is just really. Uh, I, I was quite impressed. I, I would love to go back over there again. I guess maybe, you know, start saving up now and a couple years yeah. from now we can have a little bit of money set aside to go down and have a meal. <laughs> 
<laughs> yep, that's about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Or chair. <laughs> just bring one, yeah. bring somebody. Take Kathy with you and go. I think we're we're gonna just gonna have one plate and uh, <laughs> we're gonna share the plate. Yeah. yeah. Two <laughs> forks. And, uh, bring us <laughs> bring us one glass of wine. We're gonna share that, and then we'll go to the dessert room and share dessert there. But uh, that, that's right. <laughs> It's just about the way it is. And it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. really impressed. But, you know, and I don't know, I, I just, uh, you know, the amount of money there. And it's not, it, the place isn't like real super intimate. It's it's loud. It's, it's rather loud. And, uh, you know, people, it, it's not made to have a whole bunch of people on soften the sounds. I mean, you get a group of people that's drinking right. a bunch of wine, they're going to get loud and it's going to be loud in there, you know. It's, it's something like, <laughs> yeah. what, what was that one place down on uh, that you took me to on the... Tio Pepe's. Tio Pepe's. Tio Pepe's. Uh, <laughs> that is down on 60. Uh, it was. I think they closed it down now. Oh, it's still there. Are you sure? Oh. No, I guess it's still there. <laughs> Tio Pepe's down to 60. It is great, great food. I mean, hmm. the best Chateaubriand I've ever had in my life. I mean, it was just, it's really, really great food. But it's just a great big room. And there is no atmosphere at all there. But, oh, my gosh, the food is so good. Yeah. Uh, but that's... Uh, I didn't know Teal Pepe's was still open, um, but that's you know that's uh, something like Burns. I mean, it's just it's, there's no atmosphere, but it's just the food and the wine is so great that you know you can overlook all that. So um, interesting. But, um, yeah, yeah. I would. I, I would well, love to taste hamburger. <laughs> but, you know, if I went there, I'd never order a hamburger. So that's. Oh, well, um, I, let's see, I guess we'll close the, uh, 26. This is a corner of Spain reborn. Some of the most striking vineyards in the world are the old terrace vineyards of Europe that cling with vineous ferocity to rocky, rugged mountainsides. In Spain, for example, the ancient vineyards of the region known as the Pirat have been worked exclusively by hand and donkey for centuries because tractors would tip over. In the mid-1990s, the Pirat was reborn when a group of Spanish winemakers started a mini-revolution in what had become a forgotten corner of the Iberian Peninsula. Today, those winemakers produce some of Spain's most coveted and expensive wines. Interestingly, during the transport- transformation, the price of local donkey went up 10,000%. Wow. Yeah. Supply and demand. You want my donkey to work your vineyard? It's going to cost you. <laughs> <laughs> In the yeah. wrong business, I'm going to get in the donkey business, I guess. Get in the um, donkey business. Yeah. Heck yeah. 10,000%. Um, let's see. Well, we have... So, there uh, we go. So the, what is it? 28th? 20, 26th. 
Six. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. Twenty-six. Yeah. Twenty-six. Um, okay. That'll be uh, next uh, Thursday, seven p.m. Eastern time, right here on Blog Talk Radio, and we'll if go ahead you, and close the show for. Hmm? If you object okay. to to ads on the archive shows, then let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to look into it and see about maybe you know which would you know balance out the cost a little bit better for us so so you know but if you really object to ads let me know let me know why otherwise forward on here <laughs> we'll proceed <laughs> yes uh, we'll proceed so. <laughs> oh um, there you go. Yeah. well thank you for tuning in appreciate it and uh we'll see you next week next week thank you yeah thank you This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine.